We are going to build this class on a simple premise. Ezra Taft Benson taught it, so we're on very good doctrinal ground. I believe it with all my soul. We're going to build this class on the premise that truth was restored in the order of importance. Truth was restored in the order of importance. So if we're going to understand the restoration and appreciate the the restoration, we need to look at it in terms of what was restored when. So let me ask. We could try to kind of draw it. Truth is restored in the order of importance. So I'm going to draw it as a circle. Here's the first. Then the second, the third, the fourth, the fifth, the sixth, etc. Now, here's my challenge to you. So many people focus their study on these things without having built a foundation of those things. So if you're focused on second anointing or making your calling election sure or things that are way down here and you have not built this foundation, you're going to run into some challenges. I would invite you to not build this circle until you have a very firm grasp on these circles. Truth was restored in the order of its importance. The very first thing the restoration is designed to teach us is the most important thing I need to know in the restoration. And then this, and then this, etc., etc. So, what is the single greatest truth restored in our day? If you, were to, if you were to boil Mormonism down, the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, the restoration of the gospel to one central, underlying, most important thing, what is it? What's number one? The Book of Mormon is going to come later. The Book of Mormon is certainly one of the first. The restoration of truth. And by Book of Mormon, we're going to say the restoration of key truths that have been lost. So that's important. I need to know the doctrines that have been lost from the world. But there is a doctrine. There is a truth that is even more important than understanding the truths of the Book of Mormon. What is it? The nature of the Godhead. That's the, that's the restoration. That is the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. Whatever else it is, we have to begin by understanding the main purpose of the restoration is to restore the identity, the nature of God. If you don't understand his nature, I would say don't even bother with these until you have spent some time here. The single greatest truth that the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints possesses is we know who God is. We know what his purposes are. We know where he came from. We know how he became God. And what he, we know what he wants. Why we're here. Don't move on until you have a firm grasp on those truths. Let me illustrate in the New Testament. John chapter 4. If you'll turn with me to John chapter 4, the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well. Now, the Samaritans were half-breeds from the... Do you remember when the northern ten tribes were taken captive into Assyria? you can't completely take everyone. They didn't clean out the land. But what they did is they sent Assyrians down to live in the land. So the house of Israel intermarried with Assyrians. And they were kind of looked upon by the Jews as the enemy. Now Jesus is speaking to one of those Samaritan women. John chapter 4. He's sitting at a well that Jacob dug. It's a hot summer day. 
He's thirsty. He's walked for a long time and out walks this woman. And Jesus says, give me to drink. And the woman says, how is it that thou being a Jew? He, she probably said that with a little disdain, right? How is it that thou being a Jew askest drink of me, which is I'm a woman of Samaria? We're not supposed to be talking to each other. And Jesus says, if you knew who was asking you for water, you would ask me for living water. She responds, sir, the well is deep and you don't have anything to draw with. They didn't have wells that you just cranked the bucket down. It was a hole in the ground and you had to bring something to pull the water out. And he didn't. The well is deep and you don't have anything to draw with. Art thou greater than our father Jacob that gave us the well? How I wish Jesus would have answered that question. <laughs> Are you greater than Jacob who gave us the well? What could he have said? I am the God that Jacob worshiped. He could have said, Jacob dug the well, I gave you the water. He simply said what? Whosoever shall drink of this water shall thirst again. But if you drink of the water that I shall give, it shall be in you a well of water springing up to eternal life. Now, what would you say to that? If you were a woman and someone offered you water that would quench your thirst and you'd never be thirsty again, what would you say? Sir, give me some of this water. Now, like any good missionary, what does Jesus say? Go get your husband. A single woman, go get your husband. And she says, I don't have a husband. And Jesus responds, oh, that's right. You've had five. And the man you're currently living with is not your legally and lawfully wedded husband, is he? Now, what does she say to that? Verse 19, sir, I perceive that thou art a prophet. Now they're going to discuss religion. And she's going to bring up the difference between Jew and Samaritan. Jews believed they had the truth because of what? What is her argument in verse 20? She believed that the key to truth was what? Worshiping in the right place. Her argument was that we, the Samaritans, worship where Jacob worshiped. Therefore, if it was good enough for Jacob, it's good enough for us. So we worship in the right place. The Jews thought they worshiped at the temple. In other words, they believe, she is centered on the idea that the source of truth is to worship in the right place. Tell me what Jesus says. And forgive me if I embellish it a little bit because this is our message to the entire world. Lovingly, tenderly, kindly, we say the same thing. Jesus said to the woman, verse 21, Woman, believe me, the hour cometh when neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem shall... The hour cometh when ye shall neither in this mountain nor yet at Jerusalem worship the Father. And then he said, what? Profound statement. Ye, ye worship, ye know not what. We know who we worship. Therefore, salvation is of the Jews. Do you understand the position the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is in? Yes, priesthood is coming. Ordinances are coming. Temples are coming. Prophets are coming. Book of Mormon is coming. All of that is coming. But the very center of the restoration, the central truth is we stand in front of the world and we lovingly, tenderly say, ye worship, ye know not what. We know who he is. We know he's married and there's a mother along with a father. We know his son. 
We know the connection between him and his son. We know how they're related. We know what they want. We know how they operate. We know where he came from. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know who we worship. Therefore, what would we say in verse 22? Therefore, salvation is of the church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. If we study nothing else in a class called Foundations of the Restoration, we have to start there. Who is God? And where did he come from? And what does he want? How does he work? How does he think? What is important to him? That's where we're going to begin. Go ahead. Oh, I was going to say that it's so fundamental to me because it helps me to know my identity. Yeah. And who I am and where I'm intended to be in this realm and this universe. That is the very center. Joseph Smith will say towards the end of his life, right before he's martyred, in the King Follett Discourse, if men do not understand God, they do not understand themselves. That is absolutely right. The restoration is a knowledge of who he is and how he operates. Now, let me illustrate the position we're in, okay? Turn with me to Genesis and Moses. Genesis and Moses. Can anyone tell me the relationship between those two? Genesis and Moses. Genesis or Moses is the JST of Genesis 1 through 6. We could have called it JST Genesis. That probably would have been a little bit more accurate because calling it Moses makes it sound like it's a separate entity. It is not. It is the JST of the first six chapters of the Bible. So would you allow me to say it this way? That Genesis is the Bible as it is. And Moses is the Bible as it was or should be. And we know that during the apostasy, the great and abominable church removed plain and precious truths from the Bible, right? Let me show you an example. Tell me where in Moses is Genesis 1. Find Genesis 1. Let's start with Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the earth, the six days of creation. Where in Moses is Genesis 1? That is chapter 2. Genesis 1 is Moses 2. Okay, where's Genesis 2? Sabbath day, resting, the four rivers, the rib. Where do you find those stories in Moses? Maybe it's just all scrambled up. Where is Moses 2, or sorry, where is Genesis 2 in Moses? Which chapter in Moses begins with God resting on the seventh day? Chapter 3. Genesis 3 is Moses 4. Genesis 4 is Moses 5. I'm going to let you just distill on that for a second. If this is the Bible as it is, and this is the Bible as it was, then tell me. What do you see? The Bible is missing. A chapter. Which one? Which chapter is the Bible missing? The very first chapter. The Bible is missing the first chapter. This chapter, Moses 1, should be the first chapter of the Bible. So what do you think 
was taken out of the very first chapter. Turn to Moses chapter 1. Second verse. The second verse of the Bible said what? Face to face. The fourth verse of the Bible said, You are my son. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is one of the only world-wise religions of which I know that truly believes the relationship between God and man is what kind of relationship? Father and child. Now, in order to believe that, we have to assume that there's also what? A mother. We are not his creations. We are his children. And that changes everything. God is a father. He's not a God. He's a father. And already, tell me what mothers and fathers who have children want for their children. Now, if you understand that God is my father, do you see where that puts us in all the denominations of the world? I have a father and a mother, and they want the very best for me. And all of nature testifies that mommies and daddies have babies who grow up to be mommies and daddies, who have babies who grow up to be mommies and daddies. Already, I'm beginning to see the relationship between God and us is different than I see anywhere else in the world. He is our Father. Fourth verse of the Bible. Tell me what the sixth verse of the Bible said. I have a work for thee. Uh, which one? I have a work for you, Moses, and it involves the sixth verse of the Bible made what very clear? The relationship between the Father and the Son. How confused is the world on that relationship? And yet the sixth verse of the Bible made it very clear that Jesus is not the Father, He's the Son. Go to the 39th verse. What would have been and should have been the 39th verse of the Bible says what? And as what does God want? Our Father wants to give us Everything he has. That's the purpose. We are called blasphemous for believing that. The Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints is considered blasphemous for believing that. And yet, if the Bible had not lost its first chapter, what would be written in chapter 1? His work and his identity, his hope, his goal... His life, his mission is to give us everything that he has. That we have the life that he has. That is what was restored. We know who God is. Isn't it so odd that that's considered blasphemous when I believe it's 2 Corinthians that said, um, if heirs and joint heirs, even, you know, heirs with God, and, you know, what does heirs mean to them? Yeah. Now, you'll find it. I love C.S. Lewis. I'll quote C.S. Lewis all the time. And C.S. Lewis caught that concept that we are to become gods. And so you'll find it in, in Christian literature, but it's really not taught openly, is it? And yet it was there in the first chapter of the Bible. So let's just briefly talk a few resources. If we go back to that very first circle, now we could spend an entire semester just on that one circle. And that would not, we wouldn't go down the road very long. But let's talk about what is it? What are our sources of knowing who God is? If that very first circle is, ye worship, ye know not what, we know what we worship. What are our sources to know who he is? What would you consider source number one? That has got to go down as the single 
greatest contribution of Latter-day Saint doctrine. We know who he is because of the first vision. So tell me what you learn from the first vision. What does the first vision teach you about who God is? He is a human being. He has eyes and ears and toes and fingers and that I am created literally in his image. First vision. 30 seconds into the first vision, what did Joseph know? He also found out that the Father and the Son are separate beings. My favorite reality of the first vision is the first word out of the Father's mouth was not this. The first word out of his mouth was what? Joseph. What kind of God do we worship? Not a distant, but a very familiar God who knows who we are. I love Moses chapter one. Some of, the, some of my favorite words that I pull out of Moses number one, Moses verse one, is he knows, he numbers, and he visits. What kind of God knows, numbers, and visits? That's a very different God that you're going to find out in the world. We believe in a God who knows us by name. What else? Tell me what the first vision taught you. There is a church. He does have an earthly organization. And I need to find it. I need to find it. And the way to find it is in the very first phrase. How did this restoration begin? Now, maybe we ought to do this briefly. This, I'm going to read you some description. I'm going to read you now. I'm going to read from the first vision. And you know it's the first vision. But pretend you don't know what time period this is describing. And you tell me what time period could this be? Um, I took a blank copy of the first vision. And I just, I wanted to focus on descriptions of the time period. Okay? See if this sounds familiar. What time period might this be describing? Sometime in the second year after our removal to Manchester, there was in the place where we lived an unusual excitement on the subject of religion. Would you say that there's an unusual excitement on the subject of religion today? It commenced with one group, but it soon became general among all groups. Indeed, the whole district of the country seemed affected by it, and great multitudes united themselves to the different religious parties, which created no small stir and division among the people. Would you say that those two words describe our day today? Stir and division? We live in a day where no small stir and division exists amongst the people. Some people are saying, hey, truth is over here. Other people are saying truth is over there. And we're arguing about where truth is. What's right and what's not right. There's a lot of people that feel like truth is not even an absolute. Truth is relative. My truth. That's a very common phrase, right? This is my truth. Okay. How about this phrase? For notwithstanding the great love which the converts of these... Now, let me just go politically a little bit. Let's talk about some of the more prevalent political parties in our society. Notwithstanding the great love which the converts to these different groups expressed at the time of their conversion and the great zeal manifested by their respective clergy who were active and getting up and promoting this extraordinary scene. Would you say that that's happening today? Is there a promotion to join me in my beliefs and my truths? In order to have everyone converted so they were pleased to call it, let them join whatever sect they pleased. Yet, 
When the converts began to file off, some to one party and some to the other, it was seen that the seemingly good feelings of both the priest and the convert were more pretended than real. For a scene of great confusion and bad feeling ensued. What time period could he very well be describing? Stir, division, bad feeling, confusion. He talks about his day as if it were a strife of words and contest of opinion. How about the subject of abortion? How about the subject of equal rights? Tell me there isn't stirs and divisions and that we live in a strife of words and a contest of opinions. During this time of great excitement, so great were the confusion and strife among the different denominations that here I am, a 20-year-old kid. I don't know what to do. How many of you ever felt that way? I don't know who is right and who is wrong. Even with church history, I don't know what the truth is. Plural marriage. I don't know what really happened. And I don't know what the real story is. It was impossible for a person young as I was and so unacquainted with men and things to come to any certain conclusion who was right and who was wrong. He called his day. Well, let's read this one. The cry and tumult were so great and incessant. That group was most decided against this group and used all the powers of both reason and sophistry to prove their errors on at least to make or to at least make the people think they were in error. Is that true? On the other hand, the other group was equally zealous in endeavoring to establish their own tenets and disprove all others. Joseph says he lived in the midst of a war of words and tumult of opinion. Could you say the same thing? I live in a war of words and tumult of opinions, and I don't know where to go. Therefore, the instructions to him are the same as the instructions he would give today. Would you agree? What are those instructions? What is the answer to the tumult of opinions? Even if it's about church history, what is the answer to living in a day of confusion? Is it more I would, that's a good one, but I would take, I, I think the restoration began with this phrase, right? This is the introduction. This is the very first thing said in the restoration, and it is the very heart and core of how do you get to know who he is? How do you get to know who he is? The very first thing that came out of the father's mouth after Joseph was a point. This is where my son is found. So where's he pointing today? You have to answer that question. Where is Jesus today? You have to find him. And there's so many voices. You have to find him. And then you have to do what? Hear him. The restoration, the core, the center is to know who he is because you found him and you heard him. We can't talk about temples or priesthood or anything else. We can't talk about Joseph putting his head in a hat to translate the Book of Mormon. We can't talk about plural marriage or blacks and the priesthood until you have found Jesus and have heard him. That's the restoration. Know who he is because you found where God is pointing in your day. Here is my beloved son. I heard him. Now, if this is how the restoration begins, allow me to point out how the Book of Mormon begins. 
Turn with me to 1 Nephi chapter 8, eight chapters into the Book of Mormon, to the tree of life. The vision of the tree of life. Now, some other day in a Book of Mormon class, we will digest the tree of life fully. But for this class, let me just point out that there are four groups of people in Lehi's dream. Now, I... I apologize because I have them in gray and it does not show up on this TV very, very well. Okay, so I'm just going to have to point them out. So here's the first group. Okay, the first group, verse 21. Oh, it is gray. Okay, I, I found a way to fix it. See the gray? I saw numberless concourses of people that's a group he saw a group of people then verse 24 i beheld others whole nother group of people then in verse 30 i saw other multitudes that's three so far right and then in verse 31 I saw, I also saw other multitudes. So how many multitudes did he see? Four multitudes. Now, we're gonna have to be short. Some other day we'll take a little bit more time with this, but I wanna, revert, I wanna present them from four to one. So the very first group that I've listed as my number four is here in verse 31. Tell me about group four. Tell me about group four. You can just see them in verses 31 and, or 31 and 32. Tell me about group four. They are actively going where? To the building. Now, what's the description here? I love this. They are what? Why do you need to feel your way? Because you can't see, right? They are feeling their way to the building. The fours go straight to the building. Or... Really not, because no one ever makes it to the building, right? What's the end result of being a four? You drowned and are lost. Now, the threes and the twos, all of these, will. the last word will be lost. The last word in every group is lost. But these are lost because they drowned. They drowned in the river, and that's why they're lost. Now, none of you are fours. You wouldn't be in this building if you were a four. So let's focus on the threes. If you go back to verse 21 through 23, here are the threes. Sorry if I move that too fast. Does that shake? I'll try to, I get really excited, so I'm gonna calm down, take a breath here. Yes. <laughs> Now, the thing is, every group above does something good that the group below doesn't do, but there's something they don't do that the group above does. So what word do you see repeatedly among the threes that doesn't appear in the fours? Path. Notice that, they obtain the path, they commence in the path, they commence in the path. So these are the people who get to the path. So we're going to use that. The, these are the path. Sorry, I get really excited. I don't write well. So I'm going to path. Yes, people. But what word is not mentioned once? Okay, there's two words that are very important that are not mentioned once here. Rod and tree. So path, yes. Rod, no. Tree, no. The threes never make it to the tree. They never partake of the fruit of the tree. They don't know the love of God. Now, what's the end result of the threes? They, they're lost because they 
wander. Forgive me for being bold, but being in the path is not enough. If any of you are just in the path and ignoring the rod, it's not enough. No rod, no tree. Is that a coincidence? No rod, no tree. Not a coincidence. These people wander and are lost. They don't have a guide. Okay, let's do the twos. You can see the twos have a long description because we need to know something about them. But let me go back so you can see. Now tell me what words catch, jump off the page. Rod and tree. So would you agree that their path, yes? Doesn't mention path, but obviously their path, yes. So these people are path, yes. Rod, yes. Tree, yes. Coincidence? It is my testimony that that is not a coincidence. Rod, yes. Tree, yes. Rod, no. Tree, no. I have had a front row seat for 30 years, and I will testify, rod, yes, tree, yes. Rod, no, tree, no. But tell me what the twos are doing wrong. These are not the ones. There's something that they don't do that the ones do. Anyone tell me what the twos don't do? They don't hold fast. They don't stay. They don't stay at the tree. Notice, after they had partaken, they're ashamed and they go away. Now, give me the end result. This is very, very, this is happening in front of us. Give me the end result of the twos. They don't wander away. They fall away. And that's happening in this church today. They don't wander away, they fall away. They don't stay. These guys are stay, no. I'm sorry, but I, I used to think that clinging was very similar to holding fast, that you just were holding on, and neither one is synonymous. But I was taught that clinging is holding on, letting go, holding on, letting go. You're kind of like back and forth, back and forth. And holding fast is holding on continuously. Which is a huge difference. I'll let you read this. David A. Bednar, would you mind? Yeah. Here, let me, let me make it as big as I can make it. Right there. this group was lost, perhaps because they only periodically read or studied or searched the scriptures. Clinging to the rod of iron suggests to me only occasional bursts of study on irregular dipping rather than consistent ongoing immersion in the word of God. Those are the twos. Hot and cold. Those are the clingers. Hot and cold. Now the bad thing, the, the, the sad thing about the twos is they fall away. Now, go back to Lehi's dream. Tell me why they fall away. And this is where we're coming from. Just why we described the first vision. Why do they fall away? Of? Why do they fall away? Say that again. Because what's the source of their shame? They're looking at someone else. They're letting someone else define them and tell them what their truth is. Notice this. After they have partaken, they cast their eyes about, meaning what? They're looking. They're looking at what other people are saying. How does the restoration begin again? Remind me that first phrase. This is my beloved son, hear him. 
and they are hearing whom? Now tell me about the world of social media. Tell me about the stir and the division and the animosity and the anger and the hatred. Where are you looking? The restoration begins because you know who God is and you got it from the source. I found Jesus and I heard him. I am not looking around. He says in the next few verses, what's the difference between the ones and the twos here? Give me a synonym for heed. Listen and do. Okay. Which one? The number ones heeded them not. The number twos heeded and fell away. Yield is a good one. That's a great synonym. I am yielding to what other people are telling me is true. I am yielding to what other people tell me about God. And who are the ones? I don't care what you think. Now, that's not said in a neener, neener, neener moment. It's, I love you and I'm going to listen to you, but I'm not going to be influenced by what you think. Because why? Because why? I have found him and I have heard him and I know who he is. So let's go to the ones. Tell me. Now, unfortunately, I got to split this up. So let's just read it. Anyone want to read for me? Let's start in verse 30. Someone read, please. But to be short in writing, behold, he saw other multitudes pressing forward, and they came and caught hold of the end of the rod of iron, and they did press their way forward, continuously, continually holding fast to the rod of iron until they came forth and fell down and partook of the fruit of the tree. Now, I love several phrases here. I love the continually holding fast. The people who stay continually hold fast. But to me... I believe the key is this one. The reason they stay. What does staying at the tree and falling down have in common? What do you believe staying at the tree and falling down have in common? Why do they fall down? Meaning what? What's the source of their humility? They love him. What's the real difference between the ones and the twos? They are connected to Christ personally. He's a very real person and they know him. They found him. They heard him. They have a relationship with him. They have heard his voice. I testify, I have heard his voice. And I would fall down because I know him and I'm striving to know him better. The heart and soul of the restoration is to find Jesus and hear him and to know who he is. Before he walked into Gethsemane, do you remember what he prayed? This is life eternal, that they might know thee and thy son whom he has sent. Before you jump into what does the Book of Mormon teach, before we jump into priesthood, before we talk about church and the church organization or prophets, before there's temples, the central foundation of the restoration is I am looking for Jesus. I know there's a lot of people yelling, but I am looking for Jesus. And I am going to find him and hear him so that when I get to that tree, I fall down. 
And I will not yield or heed what everyone else is saying. I testify to you that the restoration is to know Jesus. It is to know the Father. It is to understand their character. What kind of people are they? What do they do? What do they want? What's important to them? And when what's important to them becomes what's important to me, I am part of the restoration. And then I'm ready for truth and priesthood and callings and offices and temples. But you have to start where the restoration began. Where is God pointing that Jesus is today? Where is he in your life? And are you listening to him? Or are you heeding to what everyone else is saying? Find him. Know him. Love him. Testify of him. Let me give you just a few words. Actually, before we do that, can we do the Doctrine and Covenants version of this? I think there's a Doctrine and Covenants version. Turn to Doctrine and Covenants 19, verse 23. I think there's a very, very simple Doctrine and Covenants version of the Tree of Life. Doctrine and Covenants 19, 23. What are the words here? Learn of me and listen to my words. Walk in the meekness of my spirit and you shall have peace. And what is it? Do you see this word? That's hard to find in our day, isn't it? Have you found it? That is hard to find in our day. But you will find peace when you find him. Learn of me. Listen to my words, walk in the meekness of my spirit, and you will have peace in me. That's the restoration. Of all the foundations of the restoration, that's the first one. Learn of him. Know who he is and listen to his words and not worry or heed or yield the words of all the others, including me. Find him. Now, third Nephi version of this. Let's go to third Nephi 11. When he appears in the Book of Mormon, he uses some fascinating words. After he appears, I'm going to leave these blank because I don't want to, I want you to find the words. What was the invitation he gave? I would invite you to circle the words and let yell them out. Let's write them on this board. If the invitation, if the first vision began with, this is my beloved son, hear him. If the Doctrine and Covenants version of it was, learn of me, listen to my words, walk in the, the meekness of my spirit, and you will have peace. What words stand out? Yell them out. Okay, so come. Come, arise. Why is that a significant one? Who said that? Why arise? Yeah. Arise. Get up. Get up in this confusing world. Get up. And come. Okay, give me others. No. Come. No. Feel. Feel for yourself. 
trust. Now, I think, give me some more. I think we've got to go to the next verse. Arise and come forth unto me that you may thrust your hands into my side and also that you may feel the prints of the nails in my hands and in my feet that ye may know that I am the God of Israel, the God of the whole earth and have been slain for the sins of the world. Now, this is what they did. It came to pass that the multitude went forth and thrust their hands into his side and did feel the prints of the nails in his hands and in his feet. And thus they did go forth one by one. He is a one by one God. He is a one by one until they all kind of God. He doesn't run out of time. He doesn't deal with us in a group. You have to find him one by one. He is a one by one until they all got. But after you find him, what do you do? They did see, they did feel, they did know so that they could bear record. If you want to ask me what is the very core of the restoration, it is to see and feel and know him and then bear testimony. That's where you begin. Find him. Find him. Know him. And then spend the rest of your life testifying of him. Here's where I found him. See if that's where you can find him. But every one of us, one by one, have to find him for ourselves and know his real identity. Ye worship, ye know not what. We know what we worship because we found him, we've connected with him, and we testify of him. I testify of him. I testify that there's a lot of things coming. There's a prophet coming. There's a book coming. There's offices of the priesthood coming. There's power in the priesthood coming. There's covenants coming. There's temples coming. But this whole thing began when a boy came to know who his father was and that there was a savior. That's the beginning. May that be your beginning. May you spend your entire life obsessed with understanding who they are, what they are, why they are, where they are, so that we can be who they are. And I say that in the name of Jesus Christ, amen.